Welcome to another edition of the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, episode number 58, Out of This World. I'm My name's Matthew Turner. Thank you so much for joining us once again. I'm joined by my co-host, Steve and Ryan. How are you doing, boys? All good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks. Good. Ryan, Ryan have, you trim, have you trimmed your beard, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I've had, a hair, I've had a haircut for the first time in, like, since November. Yeah, you definitely look less Cro-Magnon man than you have been, especially during the draft, when I think we were all looking a bit dishevelled. We yeah, were all a bit haggard. Well, i shape up for the off-season. <laughs> Very smart. Have you started playing yet, Ryan? Uh, got first game in about a month, but we're in a full contact training now, so it's about four weeks to go, and we open against the Premiership team, Sheffield, which is going to be real, I'd say fun. It's probably not going to be fun, but... It'll knock the cobwebs off pretty quickly. How was the first uh, big hit of pre-season? All right, because I was delivering it, not taking <laughs> it. I've been stepping it up this year, so I'm probably feeling the best playing that I ever have. So I'm ready to uh, come downhill and smack some running backs. Good stuff. And Steve, you've got your first uh, 5G inoculation and it knocked you for six. How's it yeah, feel, so- though, to have good Wi-Fi now? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's fine but I keep getting these Microsoft updates on the back of my iris every morning um, yeah no I have a COVID jab and that was a wild 48 hour ride um, not particularly pleasant but I, I do actually feel a lot um, a, a lot more relaxed going out and about now amongst the great unjabbed yeah it's mad with all the regulations kind of easing that like loads of people I know are just going about their business being unvaccinated and I'm just like Oh, I'm not sure I'm there yet. I'm not there yet. And I'm 31. So at the time of speaking, if you're 32 and above nationally, you can get the jab or you can book the jab. So mm-hmm. I'm like six months away in terms of my age. And I'm like, oh, we can do it now. But, oh, I have to wait for a few more days and it's killing me. Right. We're going to get into some news and then we're going to go through the coaches presses and finish off looking at uh, GM Holmes's interview with the Athletic Show podcast. And we're going to kick off with the Lions have made a signing. They've signed free agent tackle Darren Paolo. He signed a one-year 660 grand contract after being cut by the Denver Broncos at the start of this offseason. He was an undrafted free agent last year who hit the Broncos practice squad. Uh, He was a starting left tackle for almost four years at Utah, but he projects as a right tackle in the NFL. And this brings the Lions to the 90-man roster limit. So if we want to bring anyone else in, boys... We've got to cut someone first. Um, I'm pretty nonplussed by this one. I don't know about you, but I can't see this as anything more than the camp body. But the guys, the coaches have all preached not bringing someone on board if they don't have a genuine shot. So any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's hard to say, really. Like I say, it's, if people want to read between the lines and say this is closer to Crosby leaving than staying, that's up to them. But like I say, it's just a camp body. It's a bit of depth. I do think ultimately for the right offer, he will leave. 
but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. I think it's the trade market's going to be very slow. It could even be at the start of the season after he's had a game or two. But yeah, like you say, he's on a contract. Probably won't even make the roster at this rate. But like you say, it's good to have someone that can come in and just take reps. It's a, it's a free hitter, really, for him. Is, is this... Um... This talk of right tackle, has this been designed to on the agenda before Ant gets here so we can talk about Crosby trade with Ant kick, without Ant kicking off? Oh, he's taken the Crosby trade rooms like a champ, I have to admit, actually. For all his love for Crosby, he's kind of just sat there and taken it like a man. So, fair <laughs> play to Ant. Hopefully he does get here, but I know he's been absolutely slammed by work. He's just got a new job as a bar manager and with everything opening up uh, and with the weather getting better. I know that he's having to like cash up at night and that sort of thing, and people have been calling him sick, and you know what it's like in restaurants, it always happens, and you're the dependable ones, you're like, yeah, I'll do overtime, it's fine. Yeah, so he, he's a good guy like that, we know that. Um, so, yeah, we've probably got about, like, about 20 minutes to talk about Tyrell Crosby before we have to like show <laughs> Oh man, I don't want to even think about getting rid of Tyrell. I just, I, I don't know we spoke about this last week and the week before, but I don't think there's any amount of realistic trade capital that you could give me that I'd be like, that's worth more than the depth he provides this year, or that's going to give us meaningful trade capital going forward. Like Riz on the Detroit Lions podcast when this news came out said the most you'll get for him right now is a seventh round pick swap. And as you get towards the start of the season and tackles start going down injured, you might progress towards something like maybe a fifth-round pick. And at a fifth-round pick, I'm like, you're not even getting a starter out of that, really. No way. But in Crosby, you have someone who can start and play okay this year. And, I mean, we know we're not looking to really compete this year. But I think I'd be depressed if he went somewhere and was a starter in a playoff team. Because I can definitely see that happening. I think if you if the guys played for us, you know, uh, and they... they know his character, they know what he's capable of. Why would you trade him for a fifth-round pick that could be a complete bust? Like, keep the guy on. Um, but, you know, it, of, we are in full rebuild. I mean, retool. But I, I think we're going to... I think there's going to be a lot of heartache before the end of training camp. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and I, th- I actually think there might be bigger names than Crosby Go. You want to give us a hot take right now on who that might be? No, no, no. I'll keep my powder dry. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone that we might have penciled in already as a starter might, might not make it through. Because, you know, I think um, Dan Campbell's going to want to put his stamp on the new, the new roster. I don't, I don't recall what some of the new guys who came in on their one-year deals were perhaps guaranteed when they came on, like... Uh, Tyrell or Perryman or whatever, but if any of them aren't guaranteed that much money, considering the high-quality UDFAs we got at wide receiver, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of the presumptive starters at wide receiver get cut if they just don't perform in camp. And say Sage Surratt and Jonathan Adams and um, Jovan McKinley all play really well. I mean, that's a good dilemma to have, right? But they all could challenge for a roster spot. I think they all got guaranteed money. In their contracts, maybe say just some acting, but the other two definitely yeah. did. Yeah, so, it won't much, but yeah. I, I think probably the, the biggest thing with those kind of guys is that if they were to pick up an injury that's going to keep them out for, say, 
uh, you know, not not long term, but like a, a six to eight week. I think that's when you might see people getting cut because I'm just not sure with the current sort of roster situation and what Campbell needs to do in training camp, whether they've got the time to like just park people for six to eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Injuries are going to be a big part of it always. Yeah. All right, let's move on. And breaking news today from Dave Burkett of the Detroit Free Press on Twitter. He tweeted that the Lions are going to be giving Calvin Johnson his his money back, although the payment structure is to be decided. The implication is, is that he's going to come on board in an ambassador-type role, much like uh, other vaunted Hall of Famers that we already have doing that and Ryan you are obviously unhappy with that with your demeanour what do you think <laughs> not his money it never was his money you get a contract you don't fulfil it you retire in a deal you return your signers bonus all he's done is cry throw his toys out the pram distance himself from Detroit and then like I say we've come around and said oh well, we want to make amends with him and he's like show me the money they've rolled over had their bellies tickled He'll give him most of the signing bonus back just to play happy families. Like if every Hall of Fame did that, or every player that had a signing bonus taken away from him, teams would be skin. No one would have any friends and no one would like each other. But it is where it is. Let's just get it over and done with. I, I think it, it's difficult because when you when you've got someone who is like a significant figurehead within the organization, you, you never want to have that bad blood because it just looks so messy. And, um, but at the same time, you've got, a, as, as Ryan said, you know, that kind of fairness and consistency in terms of how you treat other players. So I, I think it's, it's probably been an, an enviable task for the, the ownership sort of how they've navigated through it, and particularly because feelings, you know, as we know it in Detroit, like run so high. So, um, I don't know. I, I I hope they do the right thing because we do want to, you know, we want to appear to be a franchise that actually does give a shit about its players. Yeah, and I think that's what it says that they are a feeling people. Whether Calvin is right or wrong on his thinking, and I agree with you, Ryan, on, on whether he's right or wrong, he's in the wrong, but he doesn't believe so, and we've kind of got to deal with that. And the choice we have is to let it fester or to just roll over and make amends. And I think that making amends, rolling over and bringing them on in an ambassador role is the least worst thing to do. So just get on with it. And it should have been done years ago. Like, he's been vocal about it. It's not like he's kind of just said, you know, screw you, I'll go away quietly. He, uh, every opportunity kind of tries to go, yeah, the lies of shit. So I was willing to pay him it just to shut him up. The fact he might come on board and actively start promoting us, given his profile as one of the you know, greatest to ever play the game in terms of how much he impacted it when he was on the field. People listen to him. His, his voice carries weight. Even if it was, we'll give you the money, but you've kind of got to work it off for us a bit by doing some ambassador stuff. I'm on board with that. If he, if he can earn it back by being a lion again, I'm fine. I'm okay with it. I don't know about retirement. I'd bring him out of time every year. And, and I mean, I, I guess without being too harsh, we, we've kind of got three legends in the franchise, Barry Sanders, Calvin Johnson and Stafford, who's obviously now at the Rams. I mean, we, 
we can't maybe be that picky about who are you know how we treat our kind of legends because we don't really have many of them no but i can't think of anyone else really that that's had a significant impact in the last sort of 30 or 40 years when when you think about certain franchises and how they've got like a proper mini hall of fame yeah and in, in that sort of time span i guess the next nearest is spielman who's already in the building i mean you have obviously loads of other legends but you're going back to the 50s and 60s to find them so yeah, yeah. anyway right let's move on uh, Kelvin Shepard has had his job title changed. He was the defensive assistant, but now he is the outside linebackers coach. I know that when the coaching hires were revealed, it was kind of glaring that there was, there was an inside linebackers coach and no outside linebackers coach. So Justin Rogers confirmed this on Twitter. And given that we've moved to 3-4, there's going to be two outside linebackers in the base formation on the field all the time. This seems like it was a sort of no-brainer, something that you know really needed its attention. And, and Ryan, I know when this was announced, you were pretty vocal on liking this move. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There's no, it's, there's no coincidence. In the same week, we find out Flowers is going to be a base outside linebacker. Now we have an outside linebacker coach, like him, Aquara, like say maybe a bit of Jalen Reeves, maybe to Violet. Like we're going to need to really work and find out who is the best fit if we're going to go to a 3-4, because, like I say, that's a big shift for a defence that puts a lot of onus on guys being able to cover. So we need someone that's designated that's going to spend 365 working with outside linebackers. And um, you were talking, just going back a few minutes, talking about, you know, who could be like a casualty from camp. In terms of the shift of formation, you kind of wonder where that leaves players like Deshaun Hand. Yeah, I yeah. agree. A lot of the defensive line are in trouble now. Do you think a lot of them are in trouble? Really? Yeah. I won't be surprised. Like, say, like, Hand, Pinasini, Austin Bryant. There's at least a few of these. Not a lot. A few of these are not making the team. That's that. I think that's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. For, for, for me, I really fancy that someone like Hand has got the size to play inside as, as the one of the down linemen, and he probably has the skill set when healthy to play on the outside. But I do think there might be people who kind of are a bit smaller than him, but not small enough to be the outside linebacker and not quite big enough to be the, the end. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that roster's deep at tackle now. All right. So, moving on, while I just reply to someone on YouTube, we have Penesel signed his rookie contract. Four years, $24.1 million fully guaranteed, $14.88 million signing bonus per Rappaport on Twitter. It was the amount that's defined by the rookie wage scale, so no surprises there. But, I mean, he signed it, which is good. Not everyone else is under contract yet, but, you know, we avoided some sort of awful situation where he decided now nah, he didn't want to play here and you saw his reaction when he got drafted he was probably happy to be in Detroit and you know he played them on as them on Madden that sort of thing but he's actually signed on the dotted line he's here for the next four hopefully five years at the very least and yep as to be expected really like say anything he'd have been happy to sign a contract with anything on it five million ten million but it just happens like say he's getting 20 plus over the years so he was just happy to get the contract penned. You always worry when rookies take forever to sign their contracts and they had second thoughts that they want to be 
traded, like you say, it can be a minefield. But no, it's done deal. I imagine the rest will follow suit pretty quickly. And, and the other good thing is that we're, you know, we can actually say that we're not in the embarrassing situation like certain franchises where they can't actually afford to sign their rookie players yet because they're over the cap. I think, is it the Falcons and the Bears? Both can't, they couldn't physically sign all their, their um, drafted players yet until they, they make some moves. So, yeah, it's a good job we're not in that position. Anyone know offhand the deadline to sign your, your rookie class? I, I don't know offhand, but I thought no. it was sometime maybe in late June. I'm not sure. I think it is. I think it's towards mid to late June, yeah. Hmm. All right. One new story I actually missed out in the schedule that I put in per Dave Baquette again. And via Alliance Source, Alliance never made the contract offer which was vaunted last week of the eight-year, $68.5 million offer to Iowa State head coach Matt Campbell. Uh, it was said in an offhand comment by CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd as if it was nothing and, and common knowledge. And kind of, you saw him say it and people were like, hang on, what did you say? Um, and clearly Matt Campbell, someone who had expressions of interest from practically everyone in this offseason in terms of wanting to become the new head coach of their organization. So a lot of interest. He met with the Jets. He was meeting with us, uh, but apparently no no offer was extended. Um, you know, it's an unnamed Lions source and no one's come out and addressed it directly. The Lions are obviously going to want to deny it. What do you think? I mean, I think that before Dan was hired, that Matt was certainly more on the radar than Dan was. I'm not that Dan didn't get an interview from anyone else. So he wasn't exactly a hire that was uh, wanted by anyone else. And it kind of came a bit out of left field. So Matt Campbell, I think we would have been happier with at the time. What do you think? No. Iowa State have only been relevant for a few years. Other than that, Matt Campbell's a relative nobody. That length of contract and that money would have been disastrous. Not to mention we'd have had to pay an absolute fortune in compensation to buy him out of his Iowa State deal. I bet it would have come closer to like $100 million. I think this rumour is, I think it's total rubbish. It makes for good lines and it's a, like I say, unnamed source, but I would I would have been really unhappy if that had happened. I think we can safely file this one under silly season bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Right, talking of the Falcons, Julio Jones has had a trade request. I mean, it is said that it was accepted pre-draft. They're now considering it. Who knows what to believe with that? But it does look like he's gone. Um, You heard, you know, that he kind of got trapped by Shannon Sharp on Undisputed. Oh, just give my mate a quick call. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'm gone from there, man. Oh, yeah, by the way, you're live on national TV. It's like, Sharp, you absolute dick. What are you doing to the... I mean, if this guy is going to say this, then potentially he's one of your friends. You don't do that to a friend, first and foremost. But otherwise, Lions were mentioned as a potential landing spot for Julio, especially in the early betting. You have a look at the betting now. We've drifted a long, long way out. God knows why we were up there in the first place, but DraftKings has us at plus 4,000, which in UK betting terms is 40 to 1. So, bet 100 to receive... Uh, 4,000 back. So it seems unlikely. And I think I think we'd all agree that that probably represents reality, that there was no chance he was coming here. Because otherwise, why are you leaving the Falcons? 
I can't I can't see the Lions signing any wide receiver over the age of twenty eight. No, no, I'm I'm absolutely with you unless unless they're particularly cheap. Which is not because he's about to make about what twelve million dollars or something stupid. <laughs> like you say, the fact is he has to go. Now there's no proof that that was Julio Jones on the Shannon Sharp we're talking to. I'd love to see actual proof that he was him on the phone. I think that was a setup. But we all know that Julio Jones wants out of Atlanta because they're terrible. They're not going to win anything. They're wasting his final years. He's always got knocks. He's 32. Like He, he is the perfect pick for a flyer, a team that is in a win-now mode. He would make perfect sense for because people talking about a first-round pick, you're never going to get a first-round pick for him. It's, it's not happening. It never will happen. But for a low second, I think you might get an absolute steal for one or two years. He's a luxury that we can't afford. It'd be nice to think it'd be a, a great addition, but he'd be sick to death of us after about five games and he'd want out. And I won't blame him, so it was never happening. Well, his, his injury history is not great. No. Um, you know, he's not been fit much in the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, I, I think he... Because I, I think... I watched the Shannon Sharp thing and I think then they asked him about the Cowboys and didn't he say like, no, I want to win? No, he said, no chance, I want to win. Yeah. Um, You're winning more at Dallas than you are in Atlanta. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I can see Jones probably has got about eight teams that he could possibly, A, that could afford him and B, that are kind of in that mode where it fits in with his kind of like career arc. I mean, you could argue that, like, the Packers would be like a, a destination, but the Packers is one of those franchises that's so kind of unambitious when it comes to like free agency, and they're so tight with their cash. I can't see them doing it. You, you can imagine him going to like somewhere like the Bears, um, because I mean their wide receiver core outside the t- you know Robinson and Mooney is not great. Um, but again, is he going to win at the Bears? Let's hope not. Going to the Patriots, going to the Packers would be hard because they're saving all their pennies because they're about to give Devontae Adams about $100 million, aren't they? He needs paying, so they can't fork out for him. I think if he went for the Patriots, that'd be a huge mistake because they're not winning anytime soon. They might have all this oodles of cash, but that's all they can really offer him. I think someone like the Bills would make sense or even the Ravens, but I don't know how their cap situation is. I think between now and yeah, he'll be gone by week one. I don't see him starting the season as a Falcon. I don't know. I don't know whether there are teams that can actually afford him. Not in terms of picks, but just in terms of the cap. Everyone's well up against it this year because they're reducing cap and you know, play it. They've already taken their positions on some of their high-value people, and a load of those teams have already made big cuts and restructures in order to get under the cap right now. I mean, the Packers have two point five million dollars worth of space. The reason I see the Packers as potentially the most likely landing spot is I can see it being a bargaining trick to get Rogers back in the building. We'll get you, Julio. You come back and win a Super Bowl with us. Can you imagine, Julio? And Devonte for one year on the same field together. Oh my God, I'd die. It, it would be wild, but I—I I mean, you can just almost pick the the landing spots. It's going to be something like the Raiders, isn't it? Like you just know it. 
something like the Raiders or what? where else could he end up? Why is it that people always list the Raiders as a place where they like to go? Is it just because they're in Vegas? Because these people say, oh, I want to win. Let's go to Vegas. And it's like that team's absolute shite. Send him to Chargers. I've said this before. The Chargers, like Herbert would love him. And they've lost so many wide receivers. Like Keenan Allen, he needs some help. It would make perfect sense in LA. I, I think it's a bit like if you if you think about like the, the premiership, like when when you get like a, a player that, you know, um like a kind of um Edison Cavani type player, you know, like someone who's probably passed their best, but they're free agent on a you know they're going to be big wages but probably like a low transfer fee you know that there's only certain clubs in the premiership that are going to pay that kind of money and you can kind of like name them and i think it's the same with like nfl franchises there's only certain franchises that have that model where they they, they want to pay for veteran players that that amount of money and the lions aren't one of them and i don't think the packers are either no, I think you're right. The, the Pats has to be the most likely landing spot. But it's just the unique situation with Rodgers, which changes my mind slightly on that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, day one of OTAs, that's Organised Team Activities, was yesterday. And there's been a load of official photos released by the Lions, which has revealed who is definitely in attendance, although it doesn't exactly tell us who wasn't in attendance because they are selective and... You know, but they have been spotted, and this is from Pride of Detroit, who've kind of gone through and listed all the players they can see. All three quarterbacks are there. In terms of the running backs, they're all in attendance too. UDFAs, rostered guys, you know, starters, they're all there. Wide receivers. Now, here's where it's a little uh, short. There's no Perryman, there's no Tyrell Williams. All the rest of them are there, though. Uh, tight ends, they're all there. O-linemen, they're all there. D-linemen. As far as I can see, they're all there. Linebackers Beckett, Tavai, Anzalone, and Anzalone, I'm sorry, and Dion Hamilton. So that means that Jamie Collins hasn't shown up potentially. And in the DBs, all are there except for Tracy Walker, and then no kickers, just Jack Fox as the punter in special teams. But that's a pretty outstanding set of people there um oh hang on a minute sorry i missed out cornerbacks there's no akuda on that list either so yeah um how cool was that photo of the offensive line with like goff taking a snap and then you got saul ragnar decker i was like oh yeah i was kind of surprised to see saul there like, given his COVID and, you know, missing rookie minicamp, I thought it might be a bit soon for him to come back, but it seems like maybe he's over it and feeling fine, which would be great. Yeah, absolutely. No news on how that's going so far, although I assume there'll be presses after day three. I think these go in chunks of three days. I think there's 10 days of OTAs, and this one ends tomorrow. So hopefully we'll get some news about that shortly. Right, thus ends the news, and we move on to the coaches' presses. So these happened shortly after we recorded last week. Uh, they refer to rookie minicamp, but to the roster, to the team, to the head coach, and whatever, pretty, pretty generally too. So let's just go through them one by one and, and pick out any really important points. So I've taken some notes to see if there's anything that people find interesting there. So... First up, we've got Mark Brunel, the quarterback coach. He was asked about 
the lore of coming to Detroit. He's not coached uh, in the NFL before, but obviously had a very successful NFL career. And, you know, why did he quit his job in Jacksonville to, to join up here? And he said, it's all about Dan Campbell. Um, it's about football, but it's about relationships too. And it's an opportunity he couldn't refuse. They played together for a year in New Orleans and they've remained in contact since then. They've seen each other at the Combine and they've maintained a really good working relationship so, and, and friendship. So it was a no-brainer for him to come. In terms of his feelings on, on QB1, he says that Goff is a talented, hardworking, positive attitude, competitive uh, guy, a winner. He's looking forward to working with him. He's picked up the offense really well. He's hungry and motivated. That Brunel's watched a lot of Goss tape and he's thrilled to be coaching him. In terms of what's happened in the last couple of years, he said that they kind of kind of leave that in the past, but help him become the best player that they can for the future. Uh, he, he's um, he enjoyed playing with coaches with NFL experience because he found them relatable, and he feels like the coaching staff with as much NFL experience is going to find. That the players will find that relatable too, and that's the, the value of the coaching staff that we have here. And he also said to the fans, really, don't give up hope on this season. There's a similar vibe to the '96 Jags, who made the playoffs after starting four and seven. Um, and he said to the players, you know, forget about what you're hearing in the press and just believe in your heart that you can do this, and and you know anything can happen. So obviously, there was quite a lot of, of interest there, or at least that I could take notes on. Um, anything that, that pops out to you there is something that you're shocked by, pleased by, Steve? Um, well, I think he said all the right things, particularly about Goff. And, you know, that's, that's what we, we really need is we, we need to like really kind of get, uh, you know, a kind of wave of positivity around Goff and, and not go into classic Lions fan, you know, let's give up on him on, on like week three kind of mode. Um, so I definitely think um, he, he said all the right things. I think just on his last point about don't give up on hope on the season, um, you know, you've got to remember that in the NFC, there's going to be seven teams that qualify for the playoffs. Um, and yeah, it, you could pretty much go, yeah, the Bucks, the Rams, um, maybe the 49ers. But I mean, there's still a lot of teams that are potentially are in turmoil in some sort of like, uh, mini rebuild and you know we've seen like a, a very very bang average Bears team sneak into the playoffs last year at 8-8 eight and eight. so yeah I, I mean personally I think we're probably going to be around 6-11 and 11, but who knows No I totally agree like you say it speaks volumes that he's telling the players not to listen to us and the reporters just block it all out like you say because we have a habit of feeding and breeding negativity. A lot of us have already written this season off already, but they're not going to listen to it. They're just going to drown out all the white noise. Like I say, whatever happens, if we win five, look for the positives. Take You'll be able to take some positives out of it. Like I say, but if we manage to sneak in and get seven sneak wild cards, like I say, it's just he wants them to be the best they can and do the best they can, like play this season for themselves. Don't worry too much what's going on in the outside world, which is good to hear because there's going to be a lot of media and there's going to be a lot of bashing this year even more normal yeah you can tell that mark's a former qb because it was a very kind of polished performance in front of the camera he's a charismatic guy and i'm looking forward to to see hear and hear him speak again um but one thing that worried me was 
the question about the past and you know Goff's tape from the last two years. He was specifically asked, you know, what were his problems? What are you going to do to fix them? And he kind of just said, we're going to make him good now. And it's like, uh, yeah, okay, we're going to make him the best player we can moving forward, which is a more polished way of saying what I just said. But like. I don't like that he dodged the question. He basically said, we're going to ignore the past. And, like, the player you're getting is the summation of what's happened in his past. Problems he has in his mechanics, yeah, they might shark in training, but you can look at the tape and see potentially what was going wrong with him. And I'm hoping that that sort of thing was that I'm not going to throw my QB1 under the bus at a press conference. But the way it was handled was more like it was a a genuine we're not focusing on that as opposed to we are focusing on that but we're not going to tell you that sort of thing uh, I don't know it just worried me am, am I going crazy <laughs> I mean I don't know are you that bothered about how he did at the Rams in the last couple of years because equally you could say well look at the tape from 2017 2018 uh, you, you know when he was I think in terms of ratings was pretty comparable with Stafford I think it's all about all about the scheme. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at a QB like Ryan Tannehill at the Dolphins, who looked like a kind of you know a dumpster fire at times, and then they take him to he goes to the Titans, completely different scheme, and all of a sudden you know he's kind of one of the top five QBs in the AFC. And and, and I think that's what we've got to think about Goff. If 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 we can get if Anthony Lynn can get the offense going and, and get the scheme that fits around Goff and plays to his strengths, I'm, I'm not worried. I'm, I'm really not worried at the moment. I, the, the only thing that worries me is the wide receiver core and is he going to have someone open to throw to? But in terms of Goff himself, I'm, I'm not worried at the moment. I agree. I wasn't Goff's biggest fan when he arrived, but I've slowly warmed to him. I think, like you say, now he looks he looks happy. He sounds happy. He sounds like he's actually got a he's got a lot to prove. That's for his own pride. Like he's not for doing it for us. Like he's got a lot of people that he needs to prove wrong. The past, as you say, is the reason he's here. Like say the Rams felt it was expendable in that deal, so he had to go the other way to secure their future. Like I say, that's that's nothing against him. Like I say, we've seen what he can do, especially when he's got a clean pocket, which is going to be a huge focus this year. He is the success of Goff this year is going to be on the offensive line, if it can keep him protected or not. If it keeps him protected and he still fails, well, then that'll be a totally different ballpark. But I'm more than willing to give him the benefit of the doubt if we're going to give him the most support he needs. Like I said, the wide receiver car could potentially be sneaky good. It could potentially be very shaky. And it could actually, he might have to rely on his tight ends a lot more than he has to. But I'm willing to just give him this season, let him grain him in. We're going to have to change the playbook for him. It's going to have to be something that suits him a bit more. Might say a bit more RPO, give him a bit more time in the pocket, run some reverses, a bootleg. Like I am more than welcome to see a new Lions. I think this is going to look very different from previous years. And then we will see how it goes from there. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Right, let's move on to Hank Fraley, the O-line coach. Uh, he was asked about competition in the O-line room. He said, are we elite? Don't know. We haven't won any games yet. 
um, which I just think is a kind of great response to that question, really. He was asked about Pen A. He said they've got high expectations. He saw him play in high school, um, alluded to the fact that in a previous interview, he said that he was the one who actually recruited him um, back at that time. And he's another piece of the puzzle. He's been great in meetings, good football IQ, good questions, kind of the intelligence of a vet without ever having having actually had that experience yet, which is great. He's well prepared, despite the fact this was all on Zoom and couldn't make it to rookie minicamp at the time. Should acclimatise quickly, given even with his year off, he's just, you know, built that way. Um, he's a great fit for the room. Everyone's very welcoming, and it's going to be a special time for the O-line in general. In terms of Fraley and his job himself, he said it was nice to have Taylor Decker kind of pulling for his job, and he appreciated that. Uh, about returning to Detroit, you said coming back means the world to me and my family. It's the longest that they've lived anywhere in their lives, which is four years, he said. Uh, so excited to be here. Detroit is built like me. I'm a blue-collar worker. I don't complain. Just put my hours in and leave it all on the field. About the players that are in the room at the moment, he said to them, if you're here, you're all the same to me. Go out and perform. The best players are going to play. All the positions are up for grabs. Um said that their coaching staff have all meshed very well and there's a kind of big positive healing and just finally on on Big V he said that he just needs to be healthy he had a really good training camp last year and then he fought through injuries all season which really hampered him uh he fought through them which is you know something a quality out of a, a guy that you really want in there that he didn't just kind of give up when things were getting tough he's potentially a long-term piece he can do things other people can't athletic he's big he can move the line can pull and anchor and pass protection. So lots to come out of that interview as well. Um, I loved the first bit about, you know, they're not thinking about being elite or not. They're just going to prove it on the field. Uh, what did what struck you, Ryan? I'll, I'll start by saying I was so happy to keep Hank Fraley. If I remember rightly, I think he had an interview with the Steelers. I think he did. I'm pretty sure they wanted him. Yep. And he chose to turn that job down and return, which says a lot about how he felt the line was to begin with last year. So now he's coming looking at fresh eyes again this year. We've made some additions. And this O-line has the potential as a unit to be one of the best we've had for a number of years. We've managed, we've not replaced the likes of Bacchus, Raiola, Riley for them for quite a few years. So we've been bodging, plugging in holes just to try to keep Stafford upright. But right now we've seen like we've got a collective unit and we've, like I say, if Big V, we'd, we all have our <laughs> doubts around him. It's a big if, if he can stay healthy. But if he can stay healthy, he's probably going to be the starting right guard all year. And he's going to help solidify that side of the line. I would love I would love to see him stay healthy all year. Because I'd, I'd love for him to prove me wrong. Because I don't think he can. But I think right now, when he says that every job and position is up for grabs, I truly believe that. That gives the hopes for like Matt Nelson, Crosby. That gives them something to aim for. No one should be plugged in as a starter or penciled in at OTAs. So he's he's telling them all, if you're here, you're here to work. And right now, you're all starters. It's just it's going to prove me wrong. So it spreads the best positive attitude that I've heard in quite a while. Yeah, I think um, I feel exactly exact the same about uh, Vito, as, as as you do, um, yeah, you, you do worry that if he picks up a couple of injuries through camp, and that you know they've got a big decision to make on him, um, 
because is he just going to have these niggling injuries that keep him off the field all, all season again? And, and I'm not sure that we can afford that. Um, so I, I think some really tough decisions are going to be made in the next like three months. Um, but, you know, I think it's all about attitude. And if, if the, you know, if, if Taylor Decker's there and he's pulling for Saul and even though Saul's like a, a big threat to, you know, I guess his status, then that's exactly what we want. We want players that aren't entitled, that don't feel that like, you know, that their their names inked in the team sheet, where, whereas everyone else is fighting for places. You want that kind of like meritocracy that if you do well and you turn up and you work and you look good and, and you, you know, produce in, in camp, you're going to get that roster spot. And maybe that's been lacking a bit in the last few seasons. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just delighted that he's here to echo what Ryan said before. He is, you know, a very, very high-quality coach. He's done a lot of good things. I really hope... So one of the things that was slightly underwhelming from last season is that we had a really good O-line still, and yet the run game didn't see the benefits of that. We were much better in pass protection, but run blocking still wasn't quite up to it yet. So, you know, hopefully Penne knocks the rust off quickly. Obviously, he didn't play in 2019, then got COVID and hasn't really played too much. Otherwise, he was a, a starter for six games in his rookie year before getting a season-ending injury, and then he started all of the, the year prior to his opt-out year. So he's only played for one and a half years in college, and then he's spent a year out of the game and then got COVID. So I worry about how quickly he's actually going to knock the rust off and how much experience he has anyway isn't very high, but fingers crossed that comes together. I, I the run, think um, the run I, game's I was, all important. Yeah, and I, I think the problem with last year was play calling. And I think what happened is Patricia really put himself into a corner by this constant talk about establishing the run, establishing the run. And it, it meant that we, you know, it's almost like he he was kind of letting his pride um you know, sort of dominate the play calling. And because we saw that Adrian Peterson first down, you know, first down, two-yard run, second down, two-yard run. And then all of a sudden, Stafford's put in a position where he's th third and long and everyone knows what, what's going to happen. And, and, and I think if you look at all the best offences in the league, you know, the commentators aren't calling the plays before we see them. You know, no one really knows what's going to happen on every play, and that there's that kind of air that anything can happen. And with the Lions, we were all, you know, we were talking to each other sometimes, like on on, on our WhatsApp group or on, on Zoom, and we were almost calling the plays before they happened. And I mean, it's just embarrassing. It was really worrying the number of times you get a man in motion, and you can just say, "Oh, this is a run to the left," just. Whenever Stafford called out kill, kill, run to the left is like the default play. And if you watch any of the lines, you can see that. If you watch that, if you did your scouting, if you did your work as a as a scout, scouting your, your, the team next week, you'd see that for the lines. And then you're like, oh, this is what's going to happen. It makes the, the, the guys on the field, if they know what's coming, it's pretty easy to play against. It was so infuriating for me. Like, it's probably my biggest bugbear with the entire Quintricia era, is knowing what was coming. I, I didn't care about the picks being particularly bad. I didn't care about them being kind of arseholey to the players, getting rid of players I liked. 
knowing what was coming when the games were actually bloody happening. It's like, why? You need to change this up, please. And, and, and then we'd, we'd take a slight lead, and then you'd go, okay, what's Patricia going to do, do? He's going to kill the clock, because that's what he's told everyone he's going to do. He's told everyone, you know, clock management, take a lead, kill the clock, run down the clock, and, and he would. And we'd just instantly turn the ball over, because, you know, there was no fear factor that we were going to, you know, go deep. And it was just so frustrating to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's move on from Hank Fraley and move on to Antoine Randall L, wide receiver coach. He started off saying the biggest thing is gaining the trust of the players as a kind of new guy in the building. You start with building relationships as a coach. He said that the guys that have come in, they're not just filling roles, but they can come in and be productive. He's got chemistry with Perryman from having had him at Tampa in 2019. Uh, it was his best year as a pro. He kept showing up in space, so he had to keep feeding him the ball, despite the fact he was third on the depth chart. You know, he was just kind of always open. Um, I think partially that was helped with who else is, you know, the WR1 and 2 in Tampa. But, you know, nevertheless, he kept getting open, so he, he was productive, and he's got to do that in Detroit, uh, in terms of Perry, he said he's got a good combo of speed and height, which helps him. Uh, in terms of what he's trying to do, the wide receiver core and themselves, he's trying to encourage the vets to engage with the rookies about what it's like being a pro with the longevity in this league. And that's all about really enjoying taking pride in your work, dedication to it on and off the field, making sure you know that you're not saying the right things when you're in front of the coaches, but living like a maniac off it. Um, he revealed that Amon Ra has been already nicknamed Saint. Um, and lots of kind of from Amon Ra, lots of asking questions and learning is kind of harrying the coaches, trying to learn as much as possible. And he's giving everything and more that's expected of him at the moment. So that's really encouraging. I think Amon Ra is potentially the guy that I'm, most looking forward to seeing and it's not only because he's the only major skill player that we've gotten in the in the draft but that he he was potentially one of our best value picks in the draft he had kind of like a late second or high third round grade got him at the top of the fourth that's that's something that's encouraging to me but again a coach that's kind of got the right idea with it you're going to get on with your players relate to them they're going to buy into you what, what do you reckon guys hey, i'll go first the way I look at Randall L, the way I would surmise this job is right now he's got a load of stray dogs, a load of puppies, and he's trying to get them ready for crufts. Like that's what his task is right now. So he's got those guys that have come in on these one-year prove-it deals to try and secure their future because they're playing for their future. He's got these young guys that are nipping at their heels and he has to kind of like mesh this together, which could be, like I say, he's... He's trying to get them all on a, to know them all on a personal basis, which I think is one of the most important things. And for them, they need to ask questions. He's got answers. They've got questions. So this is probably going to be one of the biggest jobs of probably his coaching career because a lot of people say this is probably the weakest assignment and group on the roster. So there's going to be a lot of eyes looking on him. So which, 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 of, the, which of the dogs is... Uh... Which of the dogs is going to have like the matted fur and like the one eye lost in the street fight? Well, I'm hoping from coming from like the, the charges around that area, I'm hoping it's going to be Williams. I'm hoping he's going to be like a, a rough dog with shaggy fur and has been scrapping. But 
Well, I, I would have suggested Cephas, given the court case he went through at college and then all of this stuff with his girlfriend recently. He's coming out of battered and bruised right now. Amon Ra is going to be like a little, uh, he's going to be like a, a French bulldog or a chihuahua because I think he thinks quite highly of himself, struts about a bit. Pam but, of Californian, isn't he? Oh, definitely, yeah. But no, it's got a lot of potential. Purely based off there's not that much expectation. When expectation is not that high, you have that you've got the element of surprise. Someone like Brashard Perryman, who is a perennial underwhelmer in his career, to say the least, like he could actually be really good. Like he could get here living in his father's footsteps, who was here before, potential wage number, and it could just all come together for him. So I'm I'm excited because I'm keeping my expectations steady. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the only thing that possibly throws a bit of a fly in the ointment in that in terms of what, what was said was that if the Perryman and Williams haven't turned up for OTAs, that kind of doesn't really sit right with, you know, that, that statement that, from the coach. So, yeah, let's, let's see how that plays out. That would be quite interesting. Yeah, I don't think that the that Tyrell and Brashad should feel comfortable in their role as WR1 and 2 right now. I don't think that... So, I mean, they've performed better than any of the other guys on the roster simply because they've had more opportunities. But they've, like Ryan said, they've underwhelmed in some or been injured in others. And, you know, it's not going to take much to knock them off that perch. So if I were them, they haven't been there so far i get there now and start getting some chemistry with golf because it's gonna have to come sooner rather than later if you're not even if you're the guy with the best you know quality if you've not got the chemistry with the quarterback you're not the best guy on the field so better start now even with guaranteed money i wouldn't be surprised to see one of them get cut i wouldn't be surprised at all if perriman didn't make the team yeah completely agree Completely agree. All right, let's move on to tight end coach Ben Johnson. And just on Johnson, he's a, a holdover from the previous regime too. So that's kind of interesting. Hank and him were two people who survived the previous regime. And I think that speaks to Ben's quality as a tight end coach and someone who's obviously brought Hawk through from a difficult year one to, to a much improved year two. And he was asked about Hawk. He said that last year they went through and evaluated him on a quarter season by quarter season basis and then they ended up with a big review at the end of the season obviously they did that they thought they you know got down where they thought he could improve where they thought he did well and then obviously the new coaches come in and Ben's kept on and the new coaches and, and GM come in and, and talk about Hawk and where they think he did well and where he didn't do well and that aligns with their reviews so he kind of found that to be a a good experience with a new set of eyes that the room for improvement they've kind of identified together independently but they've kind of verified each other um he said it's great that hawks enjoyed himself obviously over the off season having fun with kittle and what have you and he's part of this tight end right, academy mafia or whatever they've set it up i'm not quite sure what it is but it looks intriguing um he said the hawk is similar to to dan campbell in that Ben was with Dan Campbell in Miami as a coach, that he's a work hard, play hard kind of guy, and TJ's going to be the same. You get inside the white lines, he's going to give you absolutely everything, but as soon as you get off the field, he's going to be giving you everything in terms of fun and enjoyment and, you know, just 
doing the best he can on, on both sides. Uh, in terms of improvement, he identified route running and, and separation. He's looking forward to TJ getting some production, getting noticed, getting double covers, and finding a way to beat that as well. Um, they were excited to have Josh Hill on board, loved his skill set in his tape from last year. Then he retired, and that really changed the room. But the, he knows and sees that the young guys kind of smell and sense an opportunity that there's a job there for the taking. They're not shoehorning themselves into who the tight end three or four needs to be in terms of skill set. It doesn't have to be a blocking tight end or a receiving tight end, an H-back or, or whatever. They just want the best mix of players, which I was kind of interested in as a phrase, just to kind of step away there and say, wanting the best mix kind of indicates that you want someone different from what you have already. And so to me, that says they've identified what they have already and they know exactly who they want to take, but they're not telling us. But anyway, moving on from there, it said it's not quite sure what direction they'll go in in terms of players. But if they're going to be that far down on the on depth chart, they need to be smart players. They're going to be involved in special teams with Dave Fit, and they need to be able to perform on limited snaps. So mistakes in training camp is going to be key. The less mistakes you make in training camp, that's going to be something that's going to have a microscope put on it. Uh, dependability is the number one attribute they're looking for in the tight end three and four. So, boys, Steve, what jumps out at you from Ben? Um, just one question. Was Fells at the OTA? I, I don't remember. Yeah, he yeah. was on the line. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, potentially you would hope that this is going to be one of our most most improved groups. I know, I know Hock has had injury trouble, but when he has been fit, he's looked really, really good. But you would think with all the kind of experience, this will be one of our most improved groups and this will actually really contribute to the success of the kind of like RPO offense that I think they're going to run. Because if you have got two tight end scheme and you've got Swift in the backfield and you know you've got speedy receivers then you know we should be able to absolutely roll up some yardage, um, but you know it. it I, I think it's all about um, making sure that Hawk stays fit, and let's see. It, I mean, let's see how Fells fits in because Fells could be a great addition. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Fells. I don't, I, we should have kept Fells the first time because since we let him go in Houston, he's put great numbers in a bad team. Like he will be the he'll be the red zone guy. He's going to score, I think, a lot of touchdowns. I expect Hawkinson to do a lot of work between the 20 yard lines. Like you say, keep him fit. He does need to work on his separation because a lot of time, like you say, he was getting the ball. He's not, he can't outrun people. He's pretty sluggish. And I think he always will because that's how he's built. But so if he can get a bit more separation, this will be the year that he beats the record of Pettigrew. He should easily smash the record, I think, this season based oh. on having the extra game alone. Like, this is going to be the, one of the best pairs of tight ends we've had for multiple years. It's going to be, it's going to take something really special for any of the other guys to unsettle Fells as number two, I think. Like these two are pretty much solid, one and two either way. And like I say, I think it's it says a lot when you keep a tight end coach from the past regime, because that clearly tells you that how they're working in blocking schemes and general tight end play, it wasn't an issue. It's never going to be an issue. If these two can help solidify the edges, get to like the second level blocking, these two will help Swift immensely. Like this is going to hopefully have a huge impact on the run play. 
And I think I'm excited to see Anthony Lynn because as a head coach, he had too much to think about. Like, he should just stick to what he knows best and that's offensive coordinator. So I think this is going to be a productive offence yardage-wise. Scores, scores will either happen or they won't, but we'll certainly rack up yards. Yeah, I think Fells is really underrated as a blocker, actually. I can definitely see him performing that tight end two role really, really well. And I do expect to see with him in a lot of two tight end sets. I just think it's going to happen a lot and hopefully it's really going to help the run game. Don't I, I think that, that Hawk's going to be improved in the red zone. I mean, if you have a look at what he's done in this offseason, he has beefed up again. I mean, I know he looked like more of a man last year, but now, I mean, it's a complete transformation from his rookie year when he looked like a... I don't know, a young lad, really. He looks, he does look like a man now. I mean, he's beefy, but he looks lean as well. Like, he's not carrying any ounce of fat on him whatsoever. Um, I do wonder what that's going to do for his blocking. Because, you know, maybe he has a bit less mass in terms of baby fat and, and a bit more muscle. Does that translate well? Hopefully that's going to make him a bit quicker. I'm not sure. I don't know. He's going to be one of the more interesting people to look at as the season progresses, I think. I mean, if if you were a tight end and you could see Dan Campbell on the on the, <laughs> the sideline watching you, would you not go in for your block with absolutely like two hundred percent? I mean, you're you're not going to be you're not going to be pulling out of a block, are you? If you're no. on that roster. I mean, if if I'm Elise Mack and Hunter Thedford, I'm thinking I I've got a shot here. I know I kind of was uh, talking up. I think it's Houseman the Notre Dame tight end thinking, you know, that he's got a really good shot because he's probably potentially the best blocker on the team, maybe. But Elise Mack is meant to have done well in, in the rookie minicamp and he's got the most pedigree as an NFL player at that tight end three spots. So they've got to be smelling blood. You know, if I perform here, I'm on the team. Because this team can carry four tight ends. If that fourth tight end is also a, a kind of fullback in a, in a pinch, I can see us not carrying a fullback and I'd be gutted for Kabinda if that happens but it can happen it definitely can so there's a definite opportunity for at least half the guys we've got in the room to make the roster so they just got to go out and perform all right let's move on to our next one and the the uh oh, sorry, I was going to say smiling will be pleasant but now I'm going to move on to Dom Capers the senior defensive assistant, um, he was a really impressive guy, actually. He doesn't, he's not too loud on the mic. He kind of steps back and it's kind of a little hard to hear him when he's talking. And he's a softly spoken guy, which I wasn't really expecting. But you can see the wealth of knowledge and his experience behind the microphone in, in talking to the press and that sort of thing, which was really nice to see. He um, was asked about Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator, and uh, he worked with him with the Houston Texans for three years when they're an expansion franchise in the franchise's first year from 2002. Uh, Aaron had professionalism, attention to detail, dedication. And as an expansion team for the Texans, he made the Pro Bowl in his first year there, which, I mean, I don't know about you and expansion teams, but generally speaking, they're not good. You know, they're just, they're bedding in. It's a completely new team, new staff. You don't expect too much. The fact that he could go to a Pro Bowl in that first year is absolutely outstanding. And, you know, obviously Capers was a big part of, of Aaron getting there. So that's fantastic. Um, he was asked about Dan Campbell. Said he'd never coached alongside him before, but he's got close friends who have. And they spoke glowingly of his leadership. He declined to say which close friends this was because I think he's an employee with another organization and didn't want to trip him up. Um 
but he said he's been very impressed with how Dan relates to the players, that the way he relates to them gives him instant credibility, and he thought that the main quality of a head coach is being the leader, not necessarily being a good coach or putting a scheme in place or anything like that, but being a leader of men and having that credibility. The aspect of that is absolutely huge when it is becoming a leader, that the players are buying into you. Um, in terms of success on defense and in putting your scheme in place, he said he thought being aggressive and putting pressure on the quarterback is the, the best path to victory. Um, and, you know, I think if you're a defensive coach and you're not saying putting pressure on the quarterback, then you're, you're giving the wrong answer. But the way he says it, you're just like, that guy knows what he's talking about, which is great. Uh, in terms of how it's going so far, he said things are just really getting started. The, the players are more important than the scheme for success. He can't fit a square peg in a round hole. And when it comes to the scheme, he thought that Aaron Glenn would have the flexibility to get to know his players and adapt the scheme to fit players that he has, which is so refreshing to hear, given what has happened over the past three to four years. Boys, what stands out to you, Ryan, for Dom Capers? Uh, like you say, he's a well, very experienced. He was in Green Bay for about 150 years, I think. Like he's he's practically he's like say he's one of those wise old owls. He won't be very loud. He's not very vocal. I don't think he'll lie, but he won't stick his nose in either, which I like. Like he won't force himself upon anyone. He's there if you need him. He's just watching, taking notes. Like he's a he's very I'd say he's quite a relaxed person. Like he doesn't come across as overbearing. And the fact that he knows Aubrey Pleasant and let's say Aaron Glenn, like that, that does board well for me. Like I say, we've got in these coaches that are going to work together. And I think the key thing he said there was it's about making players fit the scheme. Because for too many years, we've tried to operate players in a scheme that just doesn't suit them. And like I say, it just it just doesn't work. You can't take every man and player, put them in the zone. You can't take a defense full of zone and ask them to play man because you're just going to trip yourself up. So I expect to see a lot of rotation, formation changes. The front's going to change. I wouldn't be surprised if we start games with a forefront, depending on what we're going to see. And he hit the nail on the head when he says, the job of a defence is to get to the quarterback, hit the quarterback, especially when you've got a secondary that's been like Swiss cheese for years. Pass rush and generating pressure consistently is going to be something that's going to take a pressure off our defence and is ultimately going to help us succeed. So if that's the ethos we're going for, try to stack the front and just, just get the job done as soon as possible, get to the quarterback. I'm fine by that. The less action, the secondary C, the better. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when it, that putting pressure on the QB is the path to victory. I mean, thank you that we've finally got someone that's approaching the defense with a bit more positivity than all that kind of like bend but don't break bullshit that we've like had to listen to for the last three years <laughs> jesus um i mean yeah you only need to look at like how the bears played tom brady when the bears absolutely terrorized tampa bay on that um thursday night football game and i think brady like came off with like 10 minutes to go and i mean the, the bears just blew them away and you know in the NFL, that's how you deal with an offense like Tampa Bay. Uh, you don't try and bend but not break. You try and get to the quarterback and you try and make him make mistakes. Um, so it's 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 very refreshing. I just you know 
maybe after three years of Quinn Trisha and uh, and the kind of that defense, I'm not convinced. But you know, I can't wait till the first week of the season and we see what they've got. You know, in store. I really can't wait. I think I'm more excited about the defense than anything else. Yeah, yeah, I I cannot wait for it. They they are saying all of the right things, but I I believe them. I don't know whether I buy into it yet because the results are yet to be seen. But from what they're saying, it's not like it's something that seems made up, that seems like they're reading it off the hymn sheet. But they're kind of thinking about it and, and saying it because it's what they genuinely believe. Now, actually making it happen is something completely different. But it's so refreshing to hear that, you know, the way that I believe a team should be built, that you should have it all work with all the bells and whistles is what they actually believe as a, as a group of coaches. So I'm really excited. Really, really excited. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Aubrey Pleasant, who we just mentioned. Defensive backs coach, come over from the Rams. He believes that all great players want to be coached hard and that great players also push coaches to be their best. He says he moved to the Lions because he had um, an opportunity for a promotion that he felt like he could be a bit more of a leader here than, than where he was, uh, that Flint, Michigan is his home. He's got a load of family still here. He feels the opportunity to build a legacy for the team in the state. Uh, he wasn't a fan of any particular NFL team growing up, even coming from, from Flint, but he just loved watching good football. He's a big Barry Sanders fan. He's not afraid of a challenge. He said that pretty much every college and professional team he joined as a player were at their kind of lowest ebb when he joins them. So he's kind of used to, to a rebuild. He's no stranger to it. Uh, on a coup that he said, focus on the small things and he can get back to his form from Ohio State. He just needs to kind of get the little things right. And that's that'll be him. Uh, in terms of the greatest cornerback he's ever played with, he said it was Aaron Donald uh, in a court humorous quip to saying, you know, that, Pass rush is a is a cornerback's best friend. So, in order to be a successful football team, it's all about collaboration and, and playing as one unit. Really, you know, although he's a DB coach, that if his guys do better, it's going to help the pass rush get home, and if the pass rush gets home, it's going to help his cornerbacks get interceptions. And you know, they they're all part of the same same team. Uh, he said he's excited by working with a young group of talented receivers with high ceilings, lots of guys with different skill sets, which is going to keep him on his toes. He's not going to be teaching the same thing to the guys all the time. That uh, you get the talent that you have with the players that are there and that you enhance it. That if you could pick out one quality, he thinks that ball production is key. So pass breakups, interceptions, false fumbles, that sort of thing. And communication, making sure you're vocal on the field, that you're talking to your teammates, that you look like you're having a good time on the field is one of the most important things. And he, aside from being the DB coach, is also the pass game coordinator on the defense. And he said his philosophy was keep it cloudy for the quarterback, the opposing quarterback. So there's going to be misdirection. There's going to be disguise. They're going to show intent and then not follow through with it. It's... um. He's going to be the the chess player on that defense for the team. Perhaps not the defensive coordinator, but actually Aubrey Pleasant's going to be that guy. And, and man, he excites me. He really does. He's got a smile on his face. He's really charismatic. And I tell you guys, if 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 this defense is 
mediocre next year. I can see him being a defensive coordinator in the next cycle. I really can. Uh, how do you guys feel about Aubrey? I'm a huge fan of him. Like you say, and the first point I picked on one is he said that he felt like this was a promotion, which means he clearly felt like he was being undervalued or wasn't respected enough at the previous organisation. I felt like he wasn't given the room to possibly move up. So he felt like he had to change destination and come back home. He's used to working in a team that's basically starting at the bottom rung of the ladder. He would rather start at the bottom of a ladder he wants to work up than stay in the middle of a ladder that he doesn't want to, for that old analogy, which I think is something that tells me he wants to progress. He does want to be a defensive coordinator, whether that's here or elsewhere. And he thinks this is a stepping stone to possibly get there, which I think is great. I noticed how he said he wants to keep it fairly simple, but then he also said that he wants to keep it cloudy, which tells me it's going to be quite complicated. He's going to wear, he's going to show coverage, he's going to show blitz and then drop into zone. He's going to uh, play press, but then drop off and uh, go deep. So he's going to keep it very interesting, I think, for the secondary. What you see isn't what you're going to get. So it's going to take a lot of questions, a lot of learning from a group of guys that I'd say are fairly young. If I think, right, we don't have a guy that's over 28. I think I think he's, I think Quinton Dunbar is the oldest and maybe 29. 29, yeah. 29. So for me, that's for that's a that's very young for a group, any secondary group. I've noticed that Quinton Dunbar has chosen number one which tells me he is making a beeline and he wants to be that starter because he can't wear number one and be on the sideline because you never live that down. I think he's going to be very key to this defence. Whether it takes out Orowaria, but he is going to have to be the one that everyone looks up to. And I think he is going to be the general of the secondary and he's going to relay all the information from Pleasant. So I'm, I'm hoping Akuda is going to have a jump like Latimer did like he started slow and then he slowly got into the groove. So as long as we don't get on his back, we pounced on a coup the first chance we could, the fan base, a lot of them did. Like they were instantly calling him out and like, if we just need to build his confidence this year, he needs confidence. And like I said, with that, the mistakes will come out. We know he's a short tackler. He was dealing with an injury. He's primed to break out just because of the flashes we saw last year. And I think, you know, where where the key is going to be is finding some balance. I just felt that the, the our defence wasn't balanced at all last season. And, you know, if, you, if you've got no pressure up front, then your secondary is going to get burned. Um, and we've got to find a way of applying that pressure, I think particularly from the inside, where we just just didn't have a threat um, and just give our corner bit, cornerbacks a bit, um, you know, a bit more of a chance because players were just so open last season. And, you know, we know that now that Akuda wasn't 100%, we had this niggling groin injury, probably should never have been a starter. He should have probably have had the surgery before, you know, they kind of threw him to the walls. But I guess the pressure of being the number three pick, you know, meant that they had to get him on the field. But, you know, it just felt like a mess all last season. And I just want someone who's got a cohesive strategy. As, as Ryan said, absolutely. Mix it up, misdirection, but not so complicated that not even our own players know what they're doing. Let's just, you know, 
let's keep it keep it simple but keep it effective yeah yeah definitely um speaking about last season and how particular decisions might have helped or hindered us blue and silver asks on youtube how bad did matt patricia hurt his defense and the progression of his players would you say and how good can they be who wants to jump in on that anyone no, it's bad. Like you say, Patricia absolutely, he absolutely killed his defence because, like you say, he was just too glaringly obvious. He didn't notice the guys anything. This guy was supposed to be a defensive guru when he came from New York. And, like, he just he just, he just, just didn't know what he was doing, like you say. He had to buy trying to, like you say, be a general behind the line, but it was too slow. Like, he tried to rely on his athleticism too much. He was beaten often in coverage, like say Titans and running backs killed us coming out of the flats, like, and then he just, he was just a huge disappointment. Like he just made excuses after excuses. The clock management as well, like you say, the defense was on the field far too often. Like the offense was partly blamed for that a lot of turnovers, but the injuries, which are a can't be helped, they absolutely killed us. Like. Losing true form so soon was probably the da- the the chip that turned into the boulder downhill. If true font stays healthy, then Akuda never plays. It was just all it just built upon us from there. Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, I, you you kind of wonder as well about the influence that Patricia had. Because I mean, we did anyone really get an idea of what Corey Undlin's pers- personality or or philosophy was last season? It kind of just felt stifled by like. You know, Patricia like leaning over over his clipboard the whole season, and you know, you just want um, Aaron Glenn to be able to show what he can do, and maybe without too much interference from from Campbell. And, and he, he seems that kind of guy. Um, but at the same time, I would imagine that if Campbell thinks something's going wrong, he will jump in quite quickly. But yeah, I think I, I think our defense are just going to play with without that kind of weight of. Uh, that dead weight of Patricia, like sort of, you know, with, with his kind of rigid ideas and formations and schemes and just the inability to like adapt situationally. I think that's that's going to be the key thing for us. Yeah. I mean, so the thing with, with Patricia and the defensive coordinator for me is it reminded me so much of Balachek and his defensive coordinators. Like, you sit back while I do the work. It's fine. Don't worry about it. If you do, if we do well, you'll get a job somewhere else. You know, and you can actually do something like smartest guy in the room. I'm a rocket scientist, Matt Patricia. Like, well done, man. On on the progression of the players, I really think that that's one of the more glaring things that I've seen on this defense. I can't name a defender still on the team that I think has improved in the last three years. I don't think I can. Flowers played okay last year when he was on the field. He was the highest rated PFF defender we had. Maybe Aquara? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One. That's fair. Fair cop. He had two good years, Aquara. A man is too boom or bust. He was either great or he was par. Like there was no consistency, which, which was disappointing. Like this is a big year for him. This yeah. is a really big year. If he can't prove this year he can be cornerback too, then he won't be here next year, simply put. In terms of the other question he has, how good can this defence be? 
you know, in, in the best case scenario, chug the Kool-Aid. How good can this defense be? Maybe not just this year, but in future years. Where's the ceiling? Top 20 at, at this, for the next season. Top 20. I mean, if we're like the 18th best defense next season, I'll be celebrating that because I still don't think we've got uh, like a strong safety room. And I still think the corners, it's going to be a le- like a learning experience. Um, you know, we've got a, a lot of young players in that corner room. Yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that the, the the front seven is going to make an impact. But if we're kind of like middle of the road, you know, I, I kind of be happy with that because we've just always, I think we've been like in the bottom five for the last three, three seasons. Yeah, like you say, this defence doesn't need to be great. It doesn't even need to be good. It can be slightly better than average to mediocre, and that will be better than what we've had in the last few years. If they can just hold their own in games, that's all we need. I'd be happy with a top 22 defence this year. Next year, I'd be happy with a top 17 defence. I'd like to jump three or four places each year. Like That that would be good for me. That would be trending in the right direction, and we know something's improving. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to chug the Kool-Aid properly. I don't care how bad. Well, the thing is, we've been saying about Goff and, and earlier on, it was like, look, at his 2017 tape and, and, you know, maybe we can recapture that. Well, for me, I'm not going to care about the defences which have come before. I've always preached that it's the scheme which has been holding these players back. But I think that these players are actually a lot better than we've been led to believe. I really genuinely think that. If the scheme is conducted to actually helping these guys, if the coaches decide that they're going to help progress these players and the players buy into what's happening, I really think, you know, I'm not talking top five, I'm not that mad, but I think the sky's the limit for these guys, at least at the latter half of this year after they've had some experience. What happens if Akuda starts playing like the number three overall pick and we've got a lockdown corner? Or maybe not a lockdown corner, but someone that, gives the quarterback just a little bit of pause before he throws that way. What happens when Flowers on a passing down comes into that defensive end role and starts rushing the passer productively from the interior with Julian Aquara on his on the side of him? You know, there's just little improvements everywhere could add up to something absolutely massive on this team. Um, Blue and Silver has replied to us and said he says he can see them jumping to top 16 if they develop a pass rush he doesn't see that anyone could run on us if i'm going to be realistic now i think that considering how bad our rush defense has been in previous years i'm i want to see it first the guys that we've got are good run defenders but they're raw rookies so you know i, I believe in mac and i believe in in Onzerike, but I'm going to give him a few games to come up to speed first. All right. Let's move on to our second to last guy. And it's Todd Wash, the defensive line coach. He actually had some proper revelations and he was a really engaging guy. You can tell that he again was in front of the mic last year as defensive coordinator of the Jags. He said, three, four is our base defense. Number one revelation. Flowers is going to be our outside linebacker in base. Second revelation right out the gate. He's going to be a defensive end in the sub and dime packages. And he's got a great skill set for what we're trying to do. Um, our job as coaches is to put the best, uh, so put the players in the positions they need to succeed. Deshaun Hands, when he's healthy, is someone that teams are going to have to deal with. He can be a special player, but it's our job to keep him healthy. 
which was something weird to hear, really. But, you know, revelation number three. Uh, in terms of the outside linebackers, uh, it was referred to kind of Aquara and Flowers going to be those guys in the question. And he said that they need to be able to do three things. One, rush the passer. Two, set the edge in run defense. Three, be serviceable enough in coverage to keep the quarterback honest. He said that Aquara and Flowers are good enough to do all three of those things. Um, in terms of his philosophy, he said it all starts with earning the right to rush the passer by stopping the run and being physical. He said that draft day was like Christmas for him in getting Mac and Levi. He said Onzerike played uh, will play defensive end in the base and then move inside in sub and nickel packages. And he revealed that Aline McNeil is nicknamed Mac. Um, he said that we're going to ask players to do what they do well. And he was asked about Dom Capers and what he brings. And he says he brings in a lot of knowledge and he almost invented this defensive scheme. So he's going to have a, a breadth of knowledge as to what Aaron Glenn is going to try and do. He said that Dom helps with the player profiling and it's absolutely priceless that he's on this defensive staff. Really impressive guy. Charismatic. I do question how much more coach speak perhaps we heard from him than some of the others. I felt like he was very polished. I don't know whether it was absolutely genuine, but saying that Trey Flowers has a great skill set for what we're trying to do is wildly untested. Now, it could be true, and I do think he potentially does have the skill set to do what we're trying to do, but to be utterly convinced that he does really says to me, I'm going to not throw my guy under the bus day one. I don't know about you guys. What do you think? Steve? I think um, it, you know, it's it's very difficult to kind of um, judge how constrained the defense were last year in terms of, you know, th th there were just times when they just didn't seem to be trying to get a sack. Um, so I guess the question is, if the defensive line, if the front seven, and you know, are, are kind of let off the leash this season, what are they capable of? How is the new formation going to change? Um, you know, I I do worry in terms of pass rush. Although on paper it looks like we've got some real potential, they're all still so young and so raw. Um, and then you look at the linebacker core, and that the linebackers and the safeties for me are probably the two um, most worrying sort of issues surrounding the defense. But you know, I I think he's saying all the right things and. Someone like Flowers could absolutely have a comeback season. Um, you know, let, let, let's see how they play. But they, they absolutely need to be more aggressive. And I can't imagine a team with Dan Campbell as head coach are going to be less aggressive than we've seen in the last three years. I agree, like you say. I suppose, like you say, it is very much coach speak because up until now, we didn't, we've never seen... Flowers at linebacker. I know he played the jack back at Patriots, but we used him primarily as a, a defensive end, as an edge. And Aquara was the healthy scratch all year, so we, barely, we, we didn't get to see him. So right now, we can only go off what we're being told. If they're the two outside linebackers and they're going to help, like say, if they're going to have to help set the edge and play against the run, then uh, that so be it, like I say. But I do notice he said that the draft was like his, was, was it like Christmas Day? He was so happy to get 
McNeil and Levi because he's noticed that the now for many years interior pressure has really been a struggle. Like I say, because we had we had Danny Shelton, but he didn't offer any pressure. He was just a black hole. He was there to swallow up any running back, not try getting the backfield. Now we're bringing in some younger, more athletic guys, so we don't have to try and battle it out. We're going to try beat the uh, the centre of the offensive tackle. So for me, I'm glad we're moving to a three four. I don't yeah. know what it's going to be like with the personnel until we see it. So right now we're just we've been told all these things and we're trying to imagine it in our minds. But as Steve said, it can't be much worse pass pass rush wise in eight years because we know we're going to be very aggressive. We've been told by at least three people now. Getting to the quarterback is going to key. I just the one thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see a choir and now he's been paired. I don't want to see him uh, go down a gear. A lot of players do do that. So I'm hoping he's going to keep up that intensity, try to get those double-digit sacks. And, yeah, let's see if we can uh, take the pressure off the linebackers covering by getting to the quarterback. Yeah, I, I think something about um, Levi that I found out recently in my in my research is that he didn't have the greatest success rate in terms of beating his man off the line. But that when he did, he had the lowest percentage of missed tackles when it came to hitting the quarterback in the entire of college football. So one thing that I noticed actually throughout the past couple of years is when we did have success and got to the quarterback, we consistently didn't finish. We didn't get the sack, quarterback breaks contain, and actually then that is advantageous to the offense in terms of getting the ball out there and, and passing. Um, uh, Riz on on the Detroit Lions podcast constantly says about... Um, Oh, former Cleveland number one overall pick, edge defender now with... Miles Garrett? Garrett. No, the other one. Um, now with a different team with the Titans. No. Was with Seattle. Jadavian Clowney. Jadavian Clowney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's consistently says about Clowney that he's not worth the paper that the contract is written on because he's someone who has terrific rate at kind of creating pressure but to not finishing. And actually, when the quarterback breaks contain, it's a worse situation for the defense than not winning your battle. You might as well hold the pocket together and force yeah. him to throw and, and, and kind of create pressure that way rather than beating the man. So Levi, if he can actually learn a bit more pass rush technique, if he can stay on his feet, because I know he can lose his feet a bit, that really looks up in terms of creating in, inside pressure. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, if you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, over the last few years, you know, their 3-4 defense has been like probably the most effective in the whole that they have seen. And the Ravens use 3-4 as well. So, you know, when when you get it right, it's a scheme that works. Especially with the amount of quarterbacks we're playing this year that have, they'll say, dual threat. If we get in the backfield and we don't finish off against the likes of Lamar Jackson and Kyla Murray, like that's going to play right into their hands. They're just going to take off, scream out of pocket, they're going to get a receiver to come back to them and they'll just pick us off. So if we're going to go, we need to go and we need to get there. Simply put. Yeah. And if, if you look at the stats from last year, we, I think we were worst for yards per play. I think it was 6.3 yards we conceded per play. And we, I think that that's a, an instant win for us because the defense, the, the new defensive line, that they're, they're not going to be running at us for 6.3 with McNeil and Onzerike, yeah, absolutely no chance. 
But I think the takeaways, I think we were second worst behind the Texans for takeaways last season. And, you know, how many times have we sat watching the team and we're, you know, we've got a really slender lead, but our defense is on the field and we're just screaming at the TV, make a play, someone make a play. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to see. It's a schematic problem, isn't it? We've been so used to seeing Patricia rush three, but in this defense, you've got to rush five pretty much every play. And a 3-4 defense is actually a 5-2 defense, really, because your outside linebackers are going to be rushing in most plays. But it's not necessarily true. So Lewin Silvers just commented with his starting seven, which is Levi, McNeil, Brockers, Flowers, Barnes, Collins, and Romeo Aquara. And, I mean, I can already see, you know, the, the three down linemen rushing, and then one of Flowers, Barnes, and Aquara hanging back and the other two rushing because we all know what Barnes can do from college. He is a fantastic player off the edge. So the fact that he can come in and do that at an elite level when you drop one of Flowers or Aquara or rush six, like the, the fact that we're actually going to be rushing the passer with more or with, with as many men as you normally have on an offensive line means that there's going to be less double teaming on some of the better pass rushes. Let's not forget that Romeo Aquara got the number of sacks he did last year in his bumper deal, being the only productive guy on that defensive line. Like, he was the only guy that people had to worry about on the O-line, and he still works. What happens when they have other players to worry about? I just cannot wait for it. Right, let's move on to our last guy, because we're going to talk about the GM as well on the Athletic briefly. I know we've been going for a while, but I'll skip through that as quickly as I can. Right, Mark DeLone. Inside linebacker's coach, he said about Barnes, he's a high-effort, relentless motor guy. He's only got one year off the ball experience, but he came into his own as the season progressed. In terms of where he has room for growth, he thinks it's in his vision in repetition, but he feels good about where Barnes is right now. One thing that was surprising, I think, to everyone is he said about Jelani Tavai that he has been very impressive so far and in really good shape. He's excited to work with him. He's done well on the field so far. He's got a good understanding of the game. He's going to be an important piece for this team. On Dan Campbell, he said that he's been outstanding, high energy, very organized. He's done a great job of bringing everyone together. And the last few months have been really fun as a coaching staff. And Jane Rees maybe, and he said he's exciting. He's going to have a chance to help us on defense on all three downs. He has that skill set. I found Mark to be an interesting character in front of the mic is clearly something that he's not comfortable with and he when he didn't think a question was applicable to him he said I think I'll leave that for someone else which I respect but I think it was the only time where I I saw that from one of the coaches didn't try and attempt to answer a question even if it was slightly unrelated to him um but that he was forthcoming in his own way it clearly wasn't a natural thing for him but the way he talks about Barnes and Tavai was striking to me. Um, the fact that he thought Barnes with only one one year's experience was, you know, pretty damn good and just needs a bit of repetition to the position to become a really good player was interesting. And Tavai, I mean, please, God, let that pick turn, turn out to be something good. I mean, if you have heard me and, and Ant on the podcast before, you know that we are Tavai believers that we think that <laughs> that he has a skill set which can succeed. It's Matt, just he's Matt, been... Can you just say that again without laughing? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, it's just, he's, he's on a hiding to nothing where he was put in a position where it was impossible for him to succeed with a defence that was crumbling around him. And you're telling a guy with not the best athleticism but good instincts that he's going to have to cover the field because the rest of his defence can't. Well, good luck with that, Jelani. But, you know, actually put a team around him that's going to help him with the fact that he's not the most athletic. Allow him to be the mind in certain situations and he's slimmed down in camp and he's looking he's looking average. I mean he really is looking in good shape. So that part is true at the very least. What what do you guys think on Jelani and, and Derek Barnes? And and Mark Delone? Mm. The jury's out on Tavai. I want him to prove me wrong. Like that's it. I'm not gonna give him like some grand expectation. Just just prove me wrong that he deserves to be on this team because he showed some flashes, but like I say also, when he got caught out, it did look bad. It looked like he was running through cement with snakes wrapped around his ankles, like it was Indiana Jones. Like he looked lost at times in the middle. So I just wanted to show that he can use his instincts along with his size. So if he shed a few pounds, that'll certainly help. That that shows a, a, a big, it felt like he needed to change his body style to suit his style of player. Barnes, I was obviously really high at the time. Like I've seen a lot of footage, like he's going to be like, like I said, I've, I've liked him Compton to Matt Milano. I'm hoping he's going to be an absolute rocket. When he gets a hole, he's going to hit it. He's going to get to the quarterback. He's going to meet the running back. Don't expect much from him coverage, like I said, because he's going to be a bit of a bit undersized. Like I say, he may get picked on a little bit, especially against lack of a tight end. But recovering the ground and in the pursuit, when we're going to play a lot of these running backs that want to get outside the pocket, I think he's going to really help in containing edge. And I think the uh, Matt Delord, I think the inside linebackers are a huge question mark, but I think he's got a lot of interesting pieces to play with. Jalen Reeves-Maven has now earned a spot. I think he's earned a right with supreme special teams player. He really does need to see some stats on his defence, and we could be pleasantly surprised by what we see. Yeah, I was listening to the... Um, I was pl- playing catch-up on some of the post-draft podcasts the other day, and... On the Detroit Lions podcast with Chris, uh, and I think they had Dan Shonker on, and he was really, really bigging up uh, Derek Barnes. Um, there was they were like really basically saying that the, the Lions have got still there, like someone should have picked him up a lot sooner. And you know he's a guy who can absolutely make a big, big impact in in season one. So I mean that that sounds to me like you know really exciting, and and that linebacker core is desperate of talent. Tavai. You know, prove me, prove us wrong, please. Prove us wrong. I, I don't think anyone is, you know, d- wants the guy to fail. But come on, prove us wrong. Yeah, yeah, right. Let's let's move on swiftly to the interview that uh, Brad Holmes had on the Athletic Football Podcast. And if you have a computer or a phone, and if you don't, how are you listening to this? Good job. Um, please go ahead and listen to that because. I know we've said before about the fact that this front office team are more accessible, more transparent in what they've done already. But an hour one-to-one interview, just terrific. Such a good listen. Um, It's an hour of your time, which is going to be really, really well spent. Learning about how, you know, you can prepare for an interview for 10 minutes. And it's a struggle because 10 minutes is a long time. But an hour... It's got to come from your heart. You've got to believe what you're saying. And, you know, you're going to be making up as you go along. So if you don't make a mistake, good job. And 
he just came across so, so well. So go ahead and listen to that on all the podcast providers or go to theathletics.com. It's, it's well worth it and free. I know you have to sub to The Athletics to read the articles, but you can listen to the podcast free. So go and do that. I'm going to skip through a couple of things that The Athletic have picked out, and I'm just going to pick and choose what I think looks good. So he was asked straight up to start with, you know, was their priorities to do with the roster in terms of what they want to turn over, what they want to add, that sort of thing. And the first quote he had, straight out the gate, yeah, well, let's be honest, we had a lot of areas of work we had to do. <laughs> and you're like, no shit. Like, that's that's just damning right there, you know. You've got teams that don't want to throw the previous regime under the bus, but that really says it, doesn't it? Um says that Dan and, and he went through, identified what he thought the strengths were on the roster, depths, upside, places they need to upgrade, that sort of thing, kind of everything that you'd expect. Um, he was asked about, you know, outside of the offensive line, which they identified as a strength, did he think every other position group was almost a blank slate? And he basically said yes. Um, you know, that there were some pieces on various positions that they kind of liked in in general, those position groups kind of did have a bit of a bank blank slate that they were going to find out what they had in the guys that were there, really. So, you know, back up. Um, in terms of Goff, you know, basically asked, why did you go and get him? Which is a fairly blunt, blunt question, you know. what? Why didn't you just get picks and get a bridge course back? And he said that basically he was delighted to get Jared. Um, with the, you know, wins on the resume that he's had, the way he conducts himself, that he's delighted that Jared is here, which is, you know, really great to hear. And re referred to the winning the playoff game on the road in the most recent game he played, completing 70% of his passes with a broken hand, which, you know, does sound pretty impressive, especially considering what sort of mental and physical toughness that takes. So let, let's take a quick break there, boys. What stands out to you? from that portion of the interview so far. It's it's insightful, it says a lot about Goff, about, you know, what they think of the quality of the roster given the blank slate comment. What stands out for you, Steve? I think it's the fact that um, he's clearly got some really sound logical principles and he's not just making like gut calls on players. Uh, he's got like a set of principles of how he goes about constructing the roster, how he goes about evaluating, evaluating players. And, you know, he's not looking at personalities. He's just looking at, you know, characteristics, capabilities. Um, and, you know, I think his take on, on Goff is absolutely accurate. And I get so frustrated with people so dismissive about golf and this is a guy who's got a team to a super bowl like yeah I, I know he didn't win the super bowl but to get through the playoffs as we've seen there's many a fantastic team have failed to navigate their way through the playoffs and you you cannot get through the playoffs if your quarterback back is absolutely immense um and you know i, I think he's got a really good take on on golf and, and building the roster and that's what we want. We, we don't want people that are going to be bound by egos and bound by, you know, the fact that they are um, obsessed with trying to create a certain ethos, like, you know, the, the, the Midwest Patriots and all, all that kind of stuff. Holmes is just trying to 
do it the right way. And I massively respect that. What about you, Ryan? Uh, the first thing I appreciate is is a uh, is dry, brutal honesty. Like <laughs> he just he just says it as it is. He said, like he said, this roster needs a hell of a lot of work outside the offensive line. There are areas like say everywhere can be strengthened. He doesn't have any favorite positions. Don't have any favorite players. Like he isn't one of those people that's going to gush over guys. He just wants people here that are hard workers, not big personalities. He doesn't want anyone that's bringing in like some uh, cocky stuff. We don't want anyone that's uh, brash. And I like the fact that he's probably considering Dan Campbell in every decision he makes, even stuff that's above his pay grade. I expect that he's going to at least hear him out on some things. It's going to be a real partnership. Like, he isn't going this alone. He isn't taking the whole world on his shoulders. He's going to uh, reach out and help spread the load where needs be. So I think he's, it's a very sensible approach. It's going to take longer than maybe we think, but I think in the long run, that will actually benefit us more. Yeah, yeah complete agreement of that. Right, let's move on to the second third of the interview. So he was asked about Michael Brockers, about going out and getting a stabilising veteran presence, about trying to thread the needle between committing themselves to a current version of the roster or, you know, having a stabilizing veteran presence um, about, you know, getting fresh bodies who are going to be there through the rebuilding on to, to, to success, hopefully. And Holmes agreed. He said, you know, that you do have to balance it, but free agency this year with the cap falling meant there was a lot of one-year deal signs. So they're going to be quite, um, oh, there's going to be a lot of flexibility in terms of who's going to be here after next year. Um, but the, he went on to say, you know, we haven't just got bridge guys. All of the guys that are here are guys they like, guys that can perform and contribute. He especially mentioned Goff, Brockers, uh, both the Williamses, Perryman, Quentin Dunbar, lots of people that he thinks that can perform in just this one year and, and hopefully can perform for years to come, potentially. Uh, even though they're shorter deals, you know, it's a perfect marriage because even if they don't, if as long as they perform here, they're going to go on and do great things somewhere, even if it's not here, which is obviously going to benefit us when it comes to conflicts. So, you know, that, that's a, a good thing. In terms of the one guy that didn't get a short-term deal is Romeo Aquara. And, you know, why did you end up paying him? What did you identify in him? And why are you committing resources at this point in the rebuilding process to this guy? And... Holmes came back and said it wasn't a difficult decision that they wanted to re-sign him, but it was always about how they were going to make it work. He did identify that it was a decision as to whether they could afford to franchise Golladay and re-sign Aquara, and clearly they made a decision on that point. It's the first time publicly he's acknowledged that that was a trade-off that they were perhaps considering. Um, the, about Romeo, that he's got all the intangibles. One plays hard, plays the right way, tough and smart. Um the way that the personnel and coaching staff kind of always were pulling for him before the decision was made. Um, let's go for one more. So he's talking about uh, Penne and how much knowledge he had of him in the offseason, whether he was on the radar in LA because they haven't had a first round pick in the last five years or whatever the six years. Um, and Holmes said, yeah, he had heard of him. And I, I thought it was an odd question because 
you don't know a first a guy's going to be a first round pick into the draft, right? You can kind of work out roughly where they're going to be, but early on in the process, it, you're not going to come out and see a true freshman and go after a few snaps. That's a first round guy. I mean, maybe you do, but it's extremely rare. So I, I, I was a bit confused by the question. But anyway, he said he first heard of Pen A through the 2019 season that uh, people have been watching Oregon and kind of just saying, look at that guy, look at that guy. And looking at him saying, wow, he looks good. And then the opt-out happens. Um, and kind of one of his guys, when he was at the Rams, was saying, Brad, I'm telling you, this guy's someone you've got to take another look at. And the skills that he has is something that they haven't seen for a very long time at the position. So that's really encouraging. Um, let's have a look at the last few questions that we've just had then. So we've talked about Penne. We've talked about Aquara. We've talked about um, the one-year guys, Brockers, Williams, Williams, Perryman, Dunbar, and how they can all contribute as a kind of good marriage. What do you think on on Holmes of how he thinks about those things? I, I think I'm um, just starting on Aquara. I think um, I think this is all about draft strategy. So I think what they've done is they've looked at Aquara, they've looked at his um, skill set, they've looked at his athletic ability, and I think that's what, what they really like about him. And they've realized that for a premium position like Pass Rush, that if they let Aquara go, inevitably they are going to have to spend next year's first-round draft pick on a Pass Rusher. Um, and I don't know, maybe they've looked at the class and maybe they, they didn't particularly fancy it. I, I'm sure they've already started to, to look ahead. So I think this is very much about draft strategy and they've gone, right, okay, next season we need, we need to draft, I don't know, maybe it's a wide receiver, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's like a, a, a linebacker, I, I don't know. But I, I think they've already have got a good idea of who next, next year's first round picks will be. And they don't want to spend it on a defensive end when they think they've got someone that's probably as good, if not better, than the current uh, the, the draft class for 2022. And, and, and I think Holmes is very much like maps out that strategy probably two years in advance. And, and that's why I think that Aquara's got the nod. And I think they've looked at Golladay, they've looked at his injury history, they've looked at his age, they've looked at the availability of wide receivers, and they've they've made that like decision and you know, it's that's how that's how it's turned out. Ryan, uh, I think for me personally, Michael Brockers was probably the best addition we made so far. I think that's because he was very underrated. Like for some reason, Aaron Donald, we know everyone gushes over and gets a lot of uh, the plaudits, but without that interior help, like you say, I wonder how less his numbers would have been about Brockers. Rockers has like had the, I think it's Samson, Ebucam, Floyd, Aaron Donald. Like there's a reason that he's been there as the mainstayer while all these players have alternated around him and they've all found success. Like he's a good guy to have in the room around younger guys. Like the guys we've got here now, we're going to learn off him so well. And he will be here probably for the entirety of the rebuild. I could see him being a three, four year guy. Like, he ain't going to jump ship because there's no need to. He knows he's got a job here, that he's got some guys that need him more than he needs them. But, like, so he's going to be comfortable. I think he'll settle in pretty well. So, for me, that is probably someone that's going to really come out of this uh, cheap 
off-season. And I think Quinton Dunbar could actually make himself a lot of money here. If he has a good bounce back year this year, like you say, I expect him to get a nice healthy, maybe two-year extension or a year extension next year. It's very plausible that he's going to have a good comeback year and see a lot of those snaps and quite possibly become the uh, the linchpin and turnover machine we need in that secondary. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Dunbar, I think, is someone who he could really take the CD1 mantle on. I, I definitely could see that. He's had the pedigree. He did it at Washington, down here in Seattle, but, you know, off-field issues that he had, which were completely not his fault. I, mean, I don't know how... You know, he was caught up in, in what happens, but he definitely wasn't his fault. And it must have affected him in COVID as well. So I think he's going to come in here and perform from day one. I'm really looking forward to seeing him. All right. Going back to the interview, there was another question on Pene. So he was asked, you rarely see guys uh, that are not only explosive, but they're nimble and have balance and everything else. Uh, understand why you get entranced by that there's lots of love but what were Penny's question marks things that you were like I'm not sure about that and I don't think that actually Brad particularly answered this question he talked about him being young but then went on to say if you have a look at his intangibles and his character and him coming from a football family his dad being a coach and how coachable he is that he's going to be absolutely fantastic so he kind of he kind of did something that you kind of do in an interview where you kind of identify a strength when you're also identifying weakness. Uh, it's like, okay, fair enough then. Um, he was asked about, you know, did you consider going in a different direction with pick number seven because you're already strong on the offensive line? And he said, well, at the Rams, on the defensive line, we had loads of good guys. And then we picked another one and another one and another one. And just kind of you made it a strength of your team for years and years to come. That You had rotation there that you could have with players moving on, but other elite prospects already there to come in. Um, and that, you know, how can we add this guy to an offensive line and, and make our strength even stronger? And is that going to help the quarterback we've just brought in in the running back room, which is potentially one of the best rooms we have already? So it just made sense to him to, to go in that direction. In terms of uh, whether, you know, because it's his first season and because they're picking a seven, which is quite high, was it particularly important to kind of nail the first pick, which is a bit like tossing a ball up for a batter at bat in, in baseball, just hit the damn thing, you know? Yeah, it's important we hit on our first draft pick. Thanks. Um, <laughs> there wasn't too much more to it than that. Um, in terms of calling Atlanta to try and move up to four, he confirmed they did have dialogue on that, didn't talk any more about that, but that was particularly interesting that they confirmed that that was the case. Um, he was asked about whether it actually made sense to, to move up in the draft, considering that you want to have as many draft picks as you can in a rebuild, to have as many swings as the bat you can. And this is probably the, the answer that I like the most, the, the final answer that Holmes had in this review, which was, you could, he said, you could say that, but it doesn't make sense to move up in the draft. But it takes you back to actually looking at the strength, relative strength of each draft. So he said, you know, you could say the 2011 draft wasn't so strong, but 2013 was. The 2015 draft isn't so strong, but 2014 was. You know, you, you need to have a look at what you're giving up and the draft class that you think you're going to have in various places before you decide whether moving up can be quite good. And I think he's saying 
in part, I was considering moving up in the 2021 draft because I'm not sure the 2022 draft is going to be as strong. So we didn't mind giving up capital then if it was for the right price. Which is something that I absolutely love to hear. He's not someone who is just going to go, oh, it's a rebuild, we need picks. It's not that simple. There's a lot of nuance to it in that he is taking into consideration everything that a man in his position should. That he has something upstairs and he's using it. Fantastic. Great. We didn't see that from anyone in the past 10 years at the GM position potentially. So fantastic. What do you guys think on the Penne downside question, the the need to hit at seven, whether he should have considered moving up or moving back particularly. What do you think? I think it's pretty obvious what Penny Sewell's weaknesses are, and that's purely a lack of experience and also playing in the Pac-12 because I'm a Pac-12 fan and it's pretty crap. So you could say, <laughs> he, you could say his level of a competition hasn't been always the best. So but then, but then you're it. a big fan of League Two, right? So yeah, it's probably the, out of the Power Five schools. The Pac-12 is the League Two, like that. That's how it's thought of. So yeah, you could argue, like say, a level competition, playing one and a half seasons. Those are his main main worries. Like say, everyone knows it, so he doesn't need to reiterate it. So the fact he tried to spin a weakness somehow into a positive, it's fine by me. Like say, like say, I'm glad that he acknowledges that. He considered trading up because I've had a look at the 2022 draft class. I wouldn't want to trade up next year. So if he was going to do it this year, that's fine by me. I can understand that. He was looking way down the line, potentially. Like he's always got like one eye just looking in the distance, which I can understand because this is... But I also get you do kind of need to hit on seven. If you don't hit on your first round draft pick when you're a GM, the people like they get on your back even more you're starting, like, say, a big disadvantage. So the fact that he uh, managed to hopefully hit a home run, it does important to him. It means a lot to him managing to start off on a good foot. So he just continued to impress in all his interviews. Okay, so I've, I've got a, a question for you because I, I think that Holmes is the kind of guy that throws a lot of red herrings around in terms of draft strategy because I think that the drafts, like... The draft is his kind of like chance to absolutely like outsmart everyone else. It's where you get such a big differential if you get it right. So I, I just think he's going to, even in an interview with The Athletic, I think he knows that that interview will be under scrutiny. So my question is, if Chase or Pitts were still on the board, would he have still picked Saul? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And and I know it's smoke and mirrors, but I, I don't know. Am I being crazy? No, you're not being crazy. I don't know whether you're right, but you're not being crazy. Oh, I don't know. You know how big I was on Pitts. I absolutely love the guy. I think he's going to be a multi-year all-pro. I just not not year one, but I think. I think he will have a first-team All-Pro selection in his rookie contract, for sure. What do you think, so, Roy? Uh, no, I agree. He wouldn't necessarily have picked Sewell. He wouldn't have turned around and played, let's make the strength of our stronger card. He might have turned around and said, let's make one of our weaknesses stronger. He might well have taken wide receiver. So I think it's all, like say, it's 
he can make all these statements now, but if things have been different, who knows how different it could have been, I suppose. I think that he'll have been tempted to trade back if Giroud were available. Trade back to 10 with Dallas or 9 with Denver or something like that. If one of those wanted to move up, and, and even pretty cheaply, if he was offered a third-round pick or fourth-round pick to move back a few spots and still take one of those three, I think he would have been very, very happy. As it shook out, it was a choice between Sewell and Fields, and that's a, it seems like a no-brainer for them. So, my, my take on it is I think out of Sewell, Chase, and Pitts, I think they liked two of those three players. I think probably there was one of those players that they didn't want to take, and if, if it had ended up with that being the only one of the three left, they would have traded back. But I, I think maybe either Chase or Pitts they liked, and I think they'd got on their draft board any two from these three, and that's why they're celebrated because they'd got one of the two. But I, 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 I think if maybe maybe they weren't keen on Chase, and if he if he'd have been there at seven, and Sewell and Pitts had gone, then that's the point they would have traded back. But maybe. but. He, he, they could have, they could have tried, they could have made the call to Atlanta and given them a fairly piss weak offer, just to kind of again throw a bit of smoke and mirrors out there. Yeah, well, wasn't the vaunted trade that they were meant to be propagating a trade for Chase? I think I, I don't know whether that was accurate or not, but it was certainly mentioned at the time that they were trying to feign wanting Chase to bait the Bengals into taking Chase at five to maximise the chance of Saul falling to seven. Now, that's some sort of next level shit that you're talking about, <laughs> Steve, in, in the first place. Whether it's true, I have a hard time believing it. But, you know, I, I th- if you ask me on the balance of probabilities whether I believe that he was their number one choice, outside of the quarterback that went number one overall, I think that Saul was the number one. I do. I think that if I, I've watched, you know, all uh, all 22 tape on him now for four, five games of his 2019 season, and I mean, I, I think he's better than Decker already at left tackle. So, you know, he's going to play right tackle, but potentially his skill set is going to be even better there. Now, there's a bit of rust to shake off because he's not going to play his 2019 level game one because he spent so much time away from the game. But, oh, I don't know. Um, Edward Molenda in the chat in, on YouTube has just said he thinks the third choice would have been Devonta Smith as opposed to... Okay. He, he doesn't mention who would have been the one to drop out of there, but I presume maybe Chase then or Pitts. I'm not sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, any other business, boys? Because we've, we've come to the end there. Any, any other questions we want to throw out before we finish? Have we got time for a quick laugh at the Packers? <laughs> There's always time for a laugh at the Packers. Go for it. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I saw. Um, <laughs> so Rogers did anyone see the interview that um, there's like a, a thirty second like bit that's floating around social media of him being interviewed on camera and talking about the character at Green Bay and it's not about yeah uh, and, and and has Rogers just been like sort of kicking back and doing like magic mushrooms like all the off season? His his hair's kind of gone got this kind of like and it's all very like new age and i just what the fuck is going on with rogers what is going on 
we must have spent the first OTAs looking at new houses. Must have just been uh, looking to see if we can list this property somewhere because, like you say, game. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. But Harry loves Jordan Love. Great kid, great kid. But it's just about you know the culture, man. He kept saying, like I, I just think. Is, is Rogers just trolling like the Packers front office? I, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to teach him a lesson. I, I still think he will start under centre at Green Bay in week one. But I think there's still a lot of drama to play out. And I'm just so glad that, like, yeah, I think we talked in the post-draft. I'm so glad that Detroit did that business with Goff and Stafford in January and just got it all clean slated and that we're not in this situation now where you've got like, you know, Mike Florio and Chris Sims talking about Stafford for an hour on PFT every day yeah. and having to listen to it. God, that'd be awful. Yeah. That'd be really bad. Uh, I, I didn't see the, the Rogers interview, so that's why I kept quiet over that. I, I, I saw that it was a thing, but I was kind of getting my last notes together before doing this. So I did miss out on that. Um, I, I feel like Rogers is a sort of petty individual that might turn up for game one, having cut, reluctantly come back to camp and absolutely balled out so that he starts, and then just kind of purposely plays badly until he's benched. <laughs> like, I could see it happening, just turning up and then just like chucking the ball straight to the cornerback for a pick six and being like, oh, well. It's all chill, man. No worries. You know, I'm just enjoying myself. And, you know, there's another mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just, he just seems so disconnected from where he like should be. Um, And I kind of wonder like what, I mean, what was teammates thinking about him? Well, I mean, you saw the reaction from, um, from the wide receiver, uh, God's sake, why has my mind gone blank? Devontae Adams. That's the one who basically indicated that if Rogers is gone, he's gone too. I mean, he didn't say in so many words, and you can only read into so much on Twitter, but I think if Rogers goes, it's the end of the Packers as we know them for the next five years, six years. And I relish that thought. If, if Rogers comes back, there's a little part of me inside that will die of a few years because if he comes back wanting to play 100% and wanting to win is there anyone who can honestly say considering what happened last year they don't think he'll elevate his game beyond his MVP season last year because he's just that sort of asshole. Huh. at yeah, least on yeah. the field he's obviously a really really nice guy off the field but god I hate him it's on quite that. interesting that the Packers first four games of the of next season uh, the Saints then the Lions, then the 49ers, then the Steelers. I mean, that's three really tough teams and the Lions, but you can imagine that <laughs> Campbell will have the Lions absolutely revved up for that one because I think that'll be his first divisional game, will it? Yeah. So you can just imagine that the Lions will absolutely fly into the Packers for that. So that's a that's a pretty tough schedule for the Packers and you can just kind of see that if Rodgers is under centre and things start to go wrong it all unravelling very quickly yeah, yeah. Um, God I'm going to love it 
Blue and Silver just commented saying, judging by the reaction in the draft room, he thinks they have drafted Saul come what may, which is fair cop. I mean, I've never seen that reaction before from a draft room ever. I don't think I've seen that reaction in person many times ever. I don't think my parents reacted that way when I got into university. Like, <laughs> I don't, like it's just absolutely incredible. I, I, I heard the clip of it that the DLP cut together and I played it loudly on my laptop, not having my headphones in for the first time in forever. And it happened, and my girlfriend turned around and said, is that firework going off? I was like, no, it's just our general manager. <laughs> <laughs> High-fiving. Yeah, fantastic. All right, that's the end of our show. So thank you so much for, for watching on YouTube, Twitch, if you have done so far. Next episode is going to be Tuesday, 1st of June, so this time next week. We're going to be profiling our first seven opponents. That's the first half of our opponents, 17 games three of them twice, 14 opponents. So next week, first seven opponents, we're going to have a look at how they've done with their draft classes of 2021. I've been teasing it for a few weeks. Live film breakdown of Penne Sword is coming maybe this weekend, maybe next weekend. Depends if I can actually get a blooming widget, which means I can circle things and annotate whatever. And, you know, I've got to sort out all the technical side of it because my knowledge is there. But I'm just not quite there on the technical <laughs> side. So I'll, I'll I'll let you guys know when that's all happening. And I'll be live on YouTube and Twitch. Come along and, and watch it with me. There's there's not going to be any editing of the videos involved. My philosophy is that you really see the character of the guy, not in the highlights, but in watching every single snap and seeing what he does in the unremarkable plays. Because if the effort is there, if the traits are there, you'll see that not in the highlights because you, it's an echo chamber. You're looking for good stuff and you'll find it. So watch we, along we just... with me. What you're saying, Matt, is that your knowledge is actually impeccable, but you need to teach yourself how to use a digital felt pen. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I don't know how to do it. Please help, Steve. <laughs> Come help. <laughs> um, right, uh, so that's coming up. I'm going to try and do that for all of our draftees. Obviously, it's two and a half months into our first preseason game, so it might be a slow burn, but we're going to do it. Um, please help us out on our socials we would really really appreciate that so if you're watching on youtube right now if you can hit that like button we'd really appreciate it subscribe to us it's if you're listening on the podcast as well if you can hit that like button on youtube for us that'd be awesome too it's rural Lions uk and that's the name of the facebook page too the facebook group is detroit Lions fans uk one pride worldwide on twitch it's rotl underscore uk and it's the same on twitter too instagram's rotl.uk we have got in-depth profiles, bios, and analysis on the draftees coming. That's going to be on RoyalBalanceUK.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Really appreciate that. And if you've got any questions or comments on there, we'll be sure to get to them too. Just remains for me to thank my co-host Steve and Ryan. I'm Matthew Turner. We'll see you next week on the Royal Lions UK podcast. Let's go Lions. One pride. One pride. One pride. One pride.